1: From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. On Nerdette, we talk to your favorite or soon-to-be-favorite people about your favorite or soon-to-be-favorite things. And today, we are talking about Exploring exploring Outer Space. Here to help us with this very exciting goal is Heidi Hamill. She's worked at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab and the Space Science Institute in Colorado, and she is awesome awesome. Today on Nanette, we're going to talk to her about the underappreciated gas giants, also known as Neptune and Uranus. Yes, it is pronounced Uranus. Thank you very much. We're also going to talk to her about why scientific discovery makes her heart race and... What cats have to do with planets. I have to tell you, I'm very excited about the cat planet situation, but it's all really great. You're going to love it. But first, we want to start with a huge moment in Heidi's career, something that happened 25 years ago that still motivates her today. Back in 1994, Heidi was a young researcher at MIT. We had uh, found
2: this object. This object was discovered by Jean Shoemaker, his wife Carolyn Shoemaker, and their colleague David Levy, mm-hmm. and that's why the object was called Shoemaker-Levy
1: nine. It I was the 9th object. I feel like it should have been called Shoemaker-Shoemaker-Levy, but that's I say okay. <laughs>
2: that too, uh, and I also say that the Shoemaker they picked was Carolyn, not Jean. Oh, perfect! And I'm perfect. sure if Jean were still with us, he would always laugh <laughs> at that joke Good. and agree.
1: <laughs> it. Was a comet, and after observing the comet for a while, astronomers realized it was orbiting around Jupiter. But that the next time it came around
2: in its orbit, it wouldn't have enough velocity to get past Jupiter. In wow. other words, it was going to crash into Jupiter. And we had a, we had about um, nine months warning. And so we were able to prepare every telescope on Earth in space to look at Jupiter when this thing was
1: going to happen. In terms of cosmic events, this was a big one. Well, designing a tomato is one thing for science. Keeping track of what's happening on Jupiter, that's another matter altogether. But To call it smashing would be an understatement. Scientists say the
0: planet Jupiter will have a close encounter with a comet this summer close heck, the comet's going to
1: hit it. As each piece strikes Jupiter's atmosphere, it will set off an explosion equivalent to a quarter million hydrogen bombs.
2: Well, we didn't know what was going to happen with this comet crash. We didn't know whether there would be anything to see at all, or if there were things to see, we didn't know what they would
1: be. And this was like the first time in human history that we were able to see things smashing into each other in space, right? So let me clarify that we have witnessed other impacts, so we know
2: impacts occurred. What was really special about the Jupiter one was we had warning that was going to happen. sure, So, So all we knew was that at a certain time these pieces were going to hit Jupiter. And that's all we knew. Yeah. And many people had predictions of what would happen. Some people predicted there'd be giant explosions. Some people predicted nothing would happen. Some people predicted there would be waves set up in the atmosphere. And so we had Hmm. to design a program um, to observe phenomena that we had no idea what they were or what their time scales were or how bright they were. Um, But we did.
1: (laughs) The chunks of comet crashed into Jupiter for several days in July of 1994 at a speed of 134,000 miles an hour. The whole world was watching.
2: I remember we were down in the basement of the Space Telescope Science Institute when the first fragment was supposed to hit. And uh, we had heard that in one of the observatories in Spain that they had seen an infrared flash At the time that the first impact was supposed to happen. So we were just sitting there waiting for the Hubble image to show up on the screen.
1: Wow. And then
2: it showed up and there was a bright spot next to the edge of Jupiter. And we're like... Is that it?
1: Just <laughs> okay, this, like to, blobs on top of Neptune. Yeah, what is this?
2: Is, is that a moon? Is that Io? Wow. A, or is that a thing? And 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 uh, you know, so you just like look it up. You know, back then we used books. Right, like, look it up. Is it <laughs> is it Io? And it's like no, it's none of the moons, and it turned out to be the the tip of a giant plume that had blown three thousand miles out above the cloud tops of Jupiter from the impact of that explosion. Oh, my
1: God. And that was just the first
2: little guy. Wow. All right. And we knew that in a couple of days there would be some big, big ones hitting. Wow. And so when that first picture came in and there was this, like, big black spot on Jupiter, I'm like, what in the world? And it was just mind-blowing. I said we were down in the basement, right? And we had a little tiny TV screen showing that le- one floor up in the auditorium, Gene Shoemaker and Carolyn Shoemaker and David Levy were doing a press conference with all these press. And they were saying, we're not really sure if we're going to see anything. And I'm down in the basement looking at this picture. Wow. <laughs> this is black spot on Jupiter. I'm like... We have to break in. Oh, we got in. it, yeah. We got to break in. And they're like, no, no, you can't do that. This, you know, I'm like, we're going up. <laughs> I, remember I said that to the TV crew. I'm like, we're going up. And we just, you know, went up the stairs and broke right into the press conference. This is a plume sequence. And you can see, this is hot off the press. And we're just taking a picture of a laser copy holdup. It's a sequence from top to bottom absolutely knocked our socks off it was fun you know and I thought it was really important to share that moment of excitement and every, everyone's like no 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 you can't do that I'm like of course we can and they couldn't stop That's the me. whole point yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I just did it um Good for yeah you. yeah it was fun did you sleep at all that week very little yeah a very very little I remember one night about in the middle of the week. I just, I was just so tired. I'd been up for 20 hours and I went back to my hotel room and I laid on the bed and I was vibrating. I was wow. like I was shaking. There was uh-huh. just like so much adrenaline. I, I slept about four hours, I think, before we all went back in because these impacts were happening every day and some of them were just absolutely spectacular. And then everybody in the world could see these things, um, you know, even with just a pair of binoculars. You can go out and look at Jupiter with binoculars and you could
1: see these things. But the Hubble images were exquisite. So it must have been crazy even just seeing these. But why else was it important? Like what else did it show us? They showed us that impacts in our
2: solar system are a real and present danger. You know, we talk blithely about, oh, the dinosaurs were killed by a giant impact. Well, here was a giant impact happening. I mean, the the, the debris clouds, from one of these impacts could encircle the planet Earth had it happened on Earth. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh, These are planetary changing scale impacts. And we were watching them happen real time. So this is not 65 million years ago kind of stuff. And so it just made us aware in a very visceral way that um, planetary impacts are something that we have to take a little more seriously than we had. And, um, you know, people have been talking about this for a long time. Arthur C. Clarke wrote about this in his book Rendezvous with Rama. It opens with a catastrophic... Impact of a of a an asteroid into the city of Padua, Italy, but uh, it's well, and different. Well, more recently
1: we have Armageddon, the classic yeah, with Bruce, Bruce Willis, Willis and Liv Tyler. That's right,
2: yeah, a really you great know, soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, and we can talk about that <laughs> if you want. No, we don't have to. <laughs> but it's my fine. point is, um, you know, th- those movies came to be because we recognize that this is a real right, thing, right? Right. And what are we going to do about it? And it it actually has turned into a real important aspect in astronomy now, a component of it, is looking for these potentially hazardous objects to protect us. So that, you know, that was an offshoot of, in part, the Shoemaker-Levy 9 crashes, making it real. (laughs) They made it real for
0: us. (laughs) (laughs) I could stay awake just to hear
1: After the break, Heidi tells me what she thinks is the most important thing to tell kids about science.
2: Science is not about being a walking encyclopedia. Being a scientist is about asking questions and trying to figure out the answers. Mm -hmm. So it's
1: inherently very creative. And other great stuff about cats. Remember the cats? The cats are coming. You're listening to Nerd Podcasts. It's a pod about cats. How much do you feel like essentially you're just like doing PR to fix Uranus's bad reputation?
2: <laughs> um, a lot of times I feel I'm doing uh, poor Uranus PR work, um, <laughs> but I love that planet. It's uh, it's gotten such a bad rap. You might even say a bum rap, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, it's really a cool planet. It's just that... Uh, We happened to fly by it with a spacecraft at the wrong season. And when Voyager 2 flew by Uranus back in 1986, its atmosphere was just not doing
1: a lot of interesting stuff. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to interrupt just really quick here. What Heidi's talking about right now is the Voyager 2 spacecraft, which NASA launched in 1977. It is still sending data back to Earth from interstellar space. And it's also the only spacecraft that's ever made a true visit to Uranus and Neptune, which means those photos we have from the 80s are still the only close-ups of those planets that we have.
2: I tell people... If you tried to learn everything about me by looking at a picture of me when I was 13 years old, (laughs) you wouldn't get a complete picture. And that's a challenge when we do flybys. We only have an incredibly brief moment in time that we're looking at an object. And uh, to really, truly understand objects like planets or other worlds, you
1: need more than just one brief glimpse. So you talk about wanting to understand this planet. But I wonder, are there practical applications? Like, I think about studying a planet like Mars, which is very close to Earth comparatively. And, you know, there's like a possibility that we could end up colonizing a planet like Mars. But when you think about planets like Neptune and Uranus, they're so much farther away. They're so different from what we're working with here on Earth. What's important about studying them still?
2: There's a couple of different reasons that we would want to study other planets. And one analogy I like to use when I'm talking to kids about planets is I'd say, look, you have a cat, right? And you love I your cat. I do have and, a cat. And I have a cat. And I love my cat. We love our cats. <laughs> yeah. And we want to take good care of our cats, right? Uh-huh. And so if our cat um, had trouble or just wanted to have a checkup of a cat, would you take your cat to a vet who's only ever looked at one cat? in their entire life? Or would you want a vet who had looked at many cats and had studied cats and big cats and small cats and cats with tails and cats without tails and cats that, you know, had all kinds of different aspects? I mean, to really understand a thing, whether it's a planet or a cat, you can't just look at one. You have to look at many. And every planet we look at has different stories to tell us about how that planet came to be and why it is the way it is. And obviously, we care deeply, deeply about the planet Earth. And we want to understand its atmosphere. We want to understand how that changes with time. We want to understand if things we are doing could be changing our atmosphere. But if we only look at Earth's atmosphere, we're looking at a very limited sample of the planets that are available to us.
1: That cat analogy is is exquisite. It's perfect, right? Cuz when you put it like that I'm like, "Oh my god, that's obvious. Of course we should be studying as many cats and planets as possible." Does it ever drive you crazy that you're never going to get to touch or see firsthand these planets that you're studying? Well, I had the truly
2: amazing experience of writing a PhD dissertation studying the clouds of Neptune and then the very next year, serving on the imaging team for a spacecraft flying over the cloud tops of Neptune. Wow, and that was an amazing experience. I mean, this was thirty years ago mm-hmm. or more, and the best telescopes we had back then. This was before Hubble had launched. It was before we'd built the amazing telescopes that I use today. Mm-hmm. Um, our very best pictures of Neptune were, to be kind, they were they were blobby <laughs> you could see you could see it was a planet like it was extended it wasn't a star and it was had like blobs, and the blobs kind of moved around, which told us the planet was rotating. And the blobs had different colors, which told us a little bit about their chemistry and their altitude in the atmosphere. But I've, you know, I was able to write a whole PhD thesis about what I just told you. So All what right? you're telling me
1: essentially is that you wrote your thesis based on the blobs. And basically, yeah. And then yeah. a year later, you got to see the real thing—the world, wow. the, the actual planet—and
2: and, and it, it was actually. Uh, I worked on the mission itself. I wasn't just there for the flyby, which took place in August of 1989, but I had started working at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in 1988, so about a year earlier. And that whole year, we were getting images from the spacecraft en route, and they were getting better and better. And and then, of course, I remember the day that we saw things that we had never seen from Earth before. We were getting close enough. Um, and we started seeing clouds and we saw this great dark spot, which blew our minds because we had no idea that Neptune had a dark spot. Wow. Yet there it was. And it was huge. And it was all these other clouds started showing up. And every day there were new things to be seen on the planet. And they were mind blowing to to me. I mean, I'd been studying this planet for years, and now it was just being revealed in all its glory. And and th- those are, those are such emotional experiences for us as scientists. Many scientists don't talk about that kind of thing, but mm-hmm. I think it's important that we do share that. That it is emotional. I mean, you just like your heart starts beating. And you, if you looked in my logbooks of of that time period, and I was a I still have them, you know, there'd be an image. And I would be so excited, I'd be drawing pictures of it with arrows and saying in my logbook, wow, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, you know, look at this, amazing. As a scientist, we sometimes get excited by things that other people don't get excited about. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> you, know, um, you know, and there there have been times that have. it's been like that for me. Um, but the spacecraft flybys and spacecraft landings on these other worlds, those are truly special moments. Because that is transporting not just us like the scientist who happens to be there or the engineer mm-hmm. but it's an opportunity for all of humanity to see a world unveiled for the first time and we're all seeing it together i mean there there it is like you know f- first we didn't know what pluto looked like and then we did and now we always will know what Pluto looks like, at least it looked like at that time when we flew by. Mm -hmm. And those are those are transformative experiences. Sometimes science is taught in a funny way Mm -hmm. in our country. They teach this thing about hypothesis and then measurement and then, you know, confirming our the hypothesis is true or not true. And, you know, a little secret is like, that's not how we do science. (laughs) (laughs) You know, most of the science that happens that's really interesting, it happens because you're going along, you had a hypothesis, you took some data, you know, and you're trying to fit it. And then you discover that one of your data points just doesn't fit whatever it is.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And you're looking at it and you're going, all right, what's wrong with this data point? And then you're thinking, well, you know, did we do something wrong with the equipment? So you check that. And then you check your logs. And it's like, did someone sneeze when they were taking this data? <laughs> whatever it is. yeah. And And then, you know, sometimes it'll turn out you can't rule it out. And then that's... When the science happens. Right, right. And then you're even questioning your own
1: hypothesis, right? That's
2: right. You're like, I thought I understood this, but this just doesn't even fit at all what I thought. Mm -hmm. And that's when you dig in and then you go down a path that you hadn't even anticipated. And that's when we learn something new. And yet, and yet, when we write it up in our paper, that's not what we're going to say. (laughs) You know, we're going to write up something, you know, so-and-so thought that it would be this. And so we went and made the observation and we learned that. We don't say that it was an outlier point that we couldn't explain, so we followed. And so, you know, let's let's say it's kind of funny that the way we do science for real is a little bit different than the way we
1: teach it. Do you think that's actually problematic that we're editing out the the confusion in these scientific papers?
2: A little bit. I think it's a little bit of a problem because... um, It's leaving out the creative part of science, Mm -hmm. you know. People think scientists are people who know things and they just know (laughs) stuff. And so when I talk to kids and they're, you know, like they know facts and so and I'm like, that's awesome. They'll ask me, you know, how many miles across is Jupiter? I'm like, I don't have any idea how many (laughs) miles across Jupiter is. You know, science is not about being a walking encyclopedia. Being a scientist is about asking questions and trying to figure out the answers and sometimes it's not obvious how to answer a question. Sometimes you have to make up a whole new way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So it's inherently very creative um and you know there's probably a reason that so many scientists are musicians and writers and artists, that same creativity, uh, you need that in science to be successful in science. You know, to really, to make a difference, you're gonna have to think out of the box. And that, that requires a creative
1: step that, that I think people don't realize so many scientists have. Is there like one thing that you always try to make sure kids know about science when you get to talk to them?
2: Yeah, th- that science is fun. That's what I like to communicate. I mean, I wouldn't do it if it weren't fun. That's why I'm a scientist. Right now, my fun is is trying to imagine what we can do for the next generation of kids. You know, there were some people who had the vision to build a Hubble Space Telescope so that when I was a young postdoc, I could use it to watch a comet crash into Jupiter, you know? It's like, who did that? It wasn't me. I was just a kid, right? But I'm now one of those people that is trying to build the next thing so that some kid somewhere, when she grows up and decides to become an astronomer, there's going to be a fantastic new facility for her to use. And she's going to do stuff that we haven't even thought of. That's why it needs to be super powerful, because I don't know what she's going to want to do but I better make a big, powerful
1: thing for her to use. Heck yeah. Yeah. Was produced by myself, Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull. Our co-creator is Trisha Bobita and our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. Nerdette is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on NPR One, or listen in the WBEZ app. It is also super amazing, magical wonderment. When you leave us some stars on Apple Podcasts, you can do that right now. And many thanks to Social Media Gal for the kind review. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We are at, Nerd at Podcast. We have a newsletter. It's got some pretty fun stuff in it. You should check it out. Do you think I can find something relating to both corgis and space for this week's newsletter? I'm going to try. You can sign up for it at wbeasy.org nerdsletter. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Podcats. I type podcats all the time. And newscats. <laughs>